0: If you are stressed out, this is a 10 meeting day for you, and then you go to class, you know, are you likely to lecture or are you likely to facilitate a creative stimulating discussion? Is that gonna impact how you interact with those students?
1: Hello, 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 my name is Jacob Miranda, an advanced doctoral student in the Experimental Psychology program here at the University of Alabama, where I have a concentration in social psychology.
2: And I'm Cassie Witt, a Pedagogical Assistant Professor in the Department of Psychology at Western Kentucky University. Together, we are the hosts of Corrupting the Youth, a podcast about the teaching of psychology.
1: If you love psychology, education, or both, then this is the podcast for you. Hello, 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 beautiful people. Today, we're excited to have on the podcast another wonderful guest, Dr. Summer Braun. Now, Dr. Braun joined the faculty of the University of Alabama from the University of Virginia, where she was a postdoctoral research associate in the School of Education and Human Development. Dr. Braun, or Summer, earned her PhD in Human Development and Family Studies at the Penn Pennsylvania State University. Her research is motivated by ecological system models, which emphasize the importance of understanding development. In context. Her research centers on schools as a particularly salient context for children development. Her program of research focuses on understanding the association between teachers, occupational health, and well being using a variety of methodological approaches. Her work bridges research and practice by studying interventions designed to support the well being of teachers and students, such as mindfulness based wellness programs. Summer, hi, how are you? Also, as the, fourth, the formal uh, introduction, I could say Summer's also a mentor and collaborator of mine, as we're also working on a research project. So, welcome to the podcast, Summer.
0: Yeah, awesome. Thank you, Jacob, for that warm welcome. Hi, Cassie. It's nice to be with you both today.
2: Um, appreciate your invitation to join you. Super happy to uh, have you on the podcast today. I guess just to get us started with, like, we always like at the very beginning, like our guests to tell us a little bit about them, Uh, maybe like give us some information. I know Jacob touched on this a bit, but your education background, um, your general research interests, and maybe even like how you got into this particular line of research.
0: Yeah. So um, I come from a family of teachers, primarily elementary school teachers. And so um, when I was little, um, I thought that I wanted to be a teacher, um, elementary school. And um, when I was in high school, I took a psychology class that I Really liked, um, and so went to went to undergrad at a small liberal arts school outside of Orlando called Rollins College, and took a couple of psychology classes, but was still interested in education, and so I was trying to explore the you know double major there, and it turned out that there were so many education classes that you had to take in order to be an elementary education major that I couldn't do both. I couldn't double major in in education and psychology, and so um, I ended up pursuing psychology, but was still still interested in um, understanding what goes on in the school context, interested in education kind of broadly. And so I got involved with some research in undergraduate and and my undergraduate uh, program. And so that led me to an interest in in grad school where I was really interested um, as I was spending more time kind of in the classroom, seeing what was going on with these elementary school teachers that I was still taking some ed classes. I was noticing that they were doing a lot more than just academic instruction, there were a lot of other things that were going on in the classroom. And so as I was kind of sitting there, you know, in the back of the room, noticing all the stuff that was going on, that kind of led me to um, want to understand, I think, a little bit more fully what teachers um, were doing, what their role was in the classroom besides just academic instruction. And so that led me to grad school as Jacob said at Penn State, where I was initially interested in kind of understanding what we call the, the hidden hand or um, invisible hand, hidden influences that teachers have, um, particularly pertaining to students' social dynamics. So how are teachers managing children's um, social peer networks, social kind of interactions in the classroom? And so um, in graduate school, I started to study that. I also um, kind of zoomed out a little bit. I think grad school is never, you know, a direct path right and so I started to um, get more and more interested in, um, in teachers occupational health and well-being the teachers in my life that I knew um, were, were struggling with their mental health and so that kind of led me to be interested in um, not only how teachers manage social dynamics but what are the other things that are going on in the classroom that we don't necessarily think about that might impact um, children's experiences in the classroom and so from there um, my kind of Program of research, you know, generally now focuses on um, teachers' occupational health and well-being and what that means, um, what are its antecedents and what are its consequences for teachers themselves, their classroom practices, and the experiences of the students in their classrooms. And so as as Jacob said, I do some some basic research, just trying to find out, you know, what is the association between, you know, teachers burnout, for example, and and students experiences. But also an exciting part for me is is the application of this knowledge. So um, what can we do if we know that, um, you know, teachers are struggling and it impacts not only, you know, themselves, but also their students, can we intervene to support teachers' mental health? My intervention work has primarily focused on mindfulness-based interventions, and I'm generally interested in, you know, interventions to promote both teacher wellness and and student wellness. Um, So that's kind of of where I'm at now Um, here at the University of Alabama. I'm a second-year faculty member developing, um, you know, still actively developing this this area of research.
1: I think your research, obviously, I work with you, I collaborate with you. I think it's super, super interesting, especially since it works with teachers and how it impacts students. And I want to explore that further. But before we do, I feel like a common question we ask our guests, and Cassie, you know this as well, it's especially it's really interesting that you come from like a family of teachers and you were interested in teaching to begin with. Can you tell us a little bit more about like your teaching philosophy? So like a lot of teaching philosophies overlap of like, I want to build critical thinking in my students or want like a level of learning. But I also find that when I talk with people, there's always seems to be like a unique feature that like characterizes their own teaching philosophy that like really stands out. And I was wondering like, yeah, can you tell me a little bit more about like when you teach those graduate level seminars or when you teach one, what is that kind of like unique feature? Like, what does that mean to you? And two, I'm kind of curious, like, has being ra- like being raised in a family of teachers has that kind of influenced your philosophy of what it means to be a teacher
0: I probably have you know similar thoughts to a lot of educators about um, you know some important qualities or aspects to bring bring to teaching so I expect you'll you'll you know hear some overlap here I think two particularly important aspects of my teaching philosophy for my identity as a faculty member as an educator Um, is the experiential learning. I try and center that for students. I think that's really important um, because we know that students connect to the material more, right, when they are not just learning rote memorization, but when they're actually doing and applying what they're learning. Um, And so as Jacob said, I'm teaching this semester a course, graduate level seminar on mindfulness across the lifespan. And so what that looks like in that class, for example, we do welcome um, practices at the beginning of every class. So a mindfulness practice that um, opens our class together. And so we, um, I will lead that or one of the other students will lead that, um, and so that's an experiential way to understand, to experience together some of the things that we're reading about in our, you know, academic articles. You know, if we're reading about a uh, mindfulness intervention for teachers, for example, um, what are some of these practices that? these teachers are doing that we're trying to figure out if it has any impact, you know, on, on other outcomes. And so that's one example of how I try and bring experiential learning into, for example, this, this mindfulness course. I think especially for for graduate students, I think about experiential learning in a way, I hope that they get something tangible out of the course um, that they can then apply as they move through the program. For example, in the statistics course I was teaching last semester. Uh, we were working on applying multi-level modeling to an area of their own research interest. And so they came to the class with the data set. And so we worked on, you know, what do, what is multi-level modeling? What does it look like? How do you do it? Um, but then the important part, part for me really was their application of this. And so then they worked through, throughout the course, the um, methods and results section of their own project in which they applied multi-level modeling. So I think the, the best way to learn about something is really to to do it and to experience it firsthand. And so that's one of the kind of I think key components that I think about in terms of my teaching the other thing that uh, you might be getting at here, Jacob, a little bit is that I feel like my own research on teachers really impacts how I think about teaching myself. For example, we know that in elementary schools, the relationship, particularly elementary schools, um, the relationship right between a teacher and a student is really important. And uh, that might be less important as you spend less time with that, you know, educator or teacher. Um, but we know, particularly in elementary school, you know, those kids are spending you know, the whole day with that teacher. Um, but that relational aspect of teaching is still really important, even as we get into the college level. I kind of continue to see how my research feeds into my teaching um, and informs how I come to the class. And so, you um, one, I think, aspect of how that actually looked um, is that this, you know, relational component is still really important as we think about graduate level courses. A lot of these courses are discussion based. And so we have to be able to make sure that we have a climate, a classroom climate, um, which we often talk about and, you know, elementary, middle school, what's the classroom or school climate like, but we have to be able to make sure that our classroom climate is one in which everyone feels comfortable, ready to speak out. Um, We can be respectful in our dialogue and, you know, have an engaging, maybe, um, you know, somewhat controversial discussion about some of these things that we're reading and do it in in a respectful way. And so how do we as faculty create that type of relational supportive climate in which we feel you know comfortable to do that that's you know something that we talk about a lot in elementary school you know research um, but i think that it also applies as we think about college college level um faculty and students as well
1: i'm glad you kind of ended that point because a curiosity question i had is you kind of mentioned this idea of like an invisible hand of that teacher's play um, or that you were interested at like earlier on in your career And I was wondering and this kind of like a lack of knowledge of like professors, at least at the instructor level, is there also something similar, right, of like professors who are teaching graduate students or professors impact on undergraduate students? I'm not familiar with the mechanisms of how it happens in elementary or high school, but would those same mechanisms play out at like the college level or at like uh, advanced degree? Yeah,
0: that's a great question. So most of my research focuses on K to to twelve teachers, so kindergarten through twelfth grade teachers. Um, my real focus is on um, is on elementary school. Uh, what you're getting at here is if we have a logic model. If your listeners are uh, familiar with the uh, logic model, if you're interventionists out there, um, we have um, you know some type of intervention or and. Um, Uh, something here in our left box, right? And we have some outcome over on the right. And so what you're trying to say is like, what is the process through which, you know, a teacher's you know, burnout, for example, or depression might be impacting um, students' experiences in the classroom. And so um, there are a couple of things that we think about that might be on that arrow. And so especially for uh, teachers of of younger students, like modeling, for example, uh, if we go back to basic psychology and and Bandura, then um, we might think that, for example, a teacher who is not quite as adept at uh, regulating their own emotions might be, you know, inclined to burst out at students, for example. Um, They might be actually modeling that type of behavior for students. You know, a little one who's seven might be like, oh, well, my you know, my teacher's looks like it's okay to yell at somebody when they're mad. So I'm yelling at somebody when I'm mad. Um, And so that's like one basic way in which we might think that, you know, this association might exist. We also think that um, another possible kind of mechanism or process is through the teaching practices that um, teachers choose to employ. That could be teaching practices in terms of like instructional practices, as well as like classroom management practices. And so, again, this might be more salient um, in elementary, school but you know are they more reactive or proactive in their management of the class Um, we might think that a stressed out teacher um, might be more inclined to be reactive and enact some harsh disciplinary um, you know punishments for example on students Um, whereas a less stressed out less burned out more kind of content happy teacher might be more proactive and directing students towards an appropriate behavior instead of being so stressed out they can't think about that until something you know bad goes wrong that then they have to correct. And so those are, those are two ways in which we think potentially key ways in which we think that this might unfold um, in the elementary school level. And so your question is, well, what happens at the, at the college level? And I think that some of those may hold, I'm interested in your thoughts here. You know, if you, as um, you are both, you know, college instructors here, um, my research focuses again, primarily on those younger students, but and I haven't done any empirical research, I should say, uh, with college faculty, but uh, I think one could easily imagine that if you are stressed out, this is a 10 meeting day for you, and then you go to class, you know, are you likely to lecture or are you likely to facilitate a creative, stimulating discussion? Is that going to impact how you interact with those students, Uh, maybe your patience or compassion? I don't know. That's an empirical question and you all might have thoughts on that.
2: I like that question. <laughs> I'm inclined to think that what you bring into the classroom in terms of like how stressed out you are feeling is probably going to I mean, considering like we're all social stimuli, you know, like that is going to have some effect like on on your students. Um but like what you were saying about, you know, younger students like seeing their teacher like lash out at someone or like yell at someone and like they they learn that that's okay. Um, or like they think that it is okay because like they see like this important figure like it, engaging in that kind of behavior. I wouldn't be surprised to see that in college students too. I think that you know as a college instructor, right? You have like some kind of of authority, like epistemic authority or or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like you have the power to like establish norms in your classroom too, right? So like if you Act in that way, you like lash out, and you know your students are probably going to think that's that's normative or or appropriate behavior. Um, but I, I feel like I'm learning so much. Um, could you like elaborate, maybe? So I am not too familiar like with your research at all. Um, So like for me and like maybe for our listeners who also like aren't too like versed in this kind of research in like some simple terms, I guess, could you kind of like outline like the theoretical framework that you use for your research? Yeah, that's a great question. So I use
0: two main theoretical frameworks. The first one is um, Bronfenbrenner's ecological systems model. So I love Bronfenbrenner, (laughs) Um, and I think a lot of, you know, psychologists uh, refer back to Bronfenbrenner. Um, because this um, model is so foundational, right? And so for uh, the kind of general premise, right, is that individuals develop within context. And so um, you could, um, if you draw a picture, you have your individual uh, interest in the center, you can draw concentric circles around that individual in which you could you know, illustrate those proximal contexts in which the individual is developing. Um, then we can think about, well, you know, here is Cassie um, you know, embedded in her home in Kentucky, but she's here within this uh, school context. Um, but also within the larger state of Kentucky in the U.S., but maybe your family is actually really proximal in there too, right? And so uh, identifying for an individual of interest um, where they develop and who those important contexts are and consist of can help us to understand um, how they develop. And so uh, Brombenbrenner is informative in my research because, as we're thinking about, for example, children um, who are developing their social and emotional skills, um, I look to the context and where those skills might develop. And so, for elementary school children, they spend the majority of their waking hours in the classroom. And especially in elementary school, uh, they spend that time with a single teacher. And so then if we think about that context, that teacher as the leader of the classroom um, is likely to play a really important role in um, how children develop. So that's one I think core um, model that I use a lot to to understand particularly children's development that's how I came to the role that teachers understanding wanting to understand a little bit more that the role that teachers play if you're following me so far then you're like okay (laughs) I'm with you teachers might be important but then from there there are lots of different ways in which teachers might be important you know do we what do we study with regards to teachers. Um, From there, a lot of my work is grounded in the pro-social classroom model. This is um, a model by Jennings and Greenberg, 2009, if you're interested in learning more. And so this model uh, says that uh, teachers own social and emotional competencies and their well-being is really important for how they establish and maintain relationships with students, their classroom practices, and also their implementation of evidence-based programs for students. From there, then we can hone in on teachers' social-emotional competencies and their own occupational health and well-being um, as theoretically important predictors um, as we're thinking about what might be important for children's development. And so working within both of those two conceptual or theoretical models, from Brenner brings me to the school context and then within schools and teachers Jennings and Greenberg you know points us in the direction of teachers social and emotional competencies and occupational health and well-being those two together really form how I think about this work
1: and could you provide like some examples of like social um and emotional competencies so i'm also thinking about the original question that you asked of like if so is this just generally because the variables i know of like do you know how to regulate your so emotional regulation perhaps do you is it like dealing with burnout is it yeah like so can you give me some examples of that and then further to kind of answer the question that you posed to us um of like do we feel like there'd be parallel of like does the teacher impact the student at the college level I would imagine so, but I also think it depends, right? So, like, if you have a teacher who's modeling, who's, like, very dismissive of students, who's kind of just, like, a jerk all the time, like, that's going to impact students' behavior. Like, if you try to have them do, like, small group discussions, it's probably not going to be too welcoming um, versus, see, this is where I get a bit iffy. If if you take more kind of my approach to teaching, I'm very, like, open with my students, right? Like, so if I have, need a mental health day, you know, because I grant them mental health days, I'll be, like, actually, class is canceled for today because, you know, for my own health. I try to like communicate that with them. I'll be like, I will not be at my best state. Mm -hmm. Um, And at times where I've gotten mixed results is when I still show up to class to teach when I'm not the best at my mental health. Mm -hmm. There are times where I've disclosed that at the beginning of class, like, hey, just to let you know, I'm kind of stressed out right now in case you see anything. And there are other times when I don't disclose it. And the the interesting thing is I feel like when I do disclose it, they get, they're like, oh, you shouldn't have told us because we wouldn't have noticed a thing, right? Like, this is actually one of your better lectures ever. And so, like, it's this weird thing of, like, I don't know what the socially emotionally competent thing would be to do of, like, disclosing that with students being transparent of, like, it seems like if I do arrive in class, then it's best not to disclose it. And they're just like happy and like, and this has happened across multiple lectures where people are like, yeah, no, no need to tell us. We're good. We just hope you're doing fine. They're like, yeah, that's the only thing I could focus on is that I know you were stressed and I couldn't pay as much attention to like the lecture content. And I'm like, oh, well, that wasn't my intent. Right. Um,
2: I guess related to that, though, I do feel like advice that I have gotten like as a teacher is like by disclosing that sort of thing, like with your students, like showing that you are like, like humanizing yourself and like explaining your vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. Also, maybe they're a bit distracted for that particular lecture, but like, it kind of contributes to like community building in the classroom and like sets a norm that like these things are, are okay. And we can talk about them, That not everybody is at 100% every day.
0: I'm with Cassie on this. This So I don't have any empirical research to back this up, (laughs) Um, but um you know, we talk a lot about being, you know, authentic, right? And so, especially when we're thinking about emotion regulation, one emotion regulation strategy that we know is not particularly effective or or helpful is emotional expression. And that's not exactly what you're talking about, Jacob. Um, you're just talking about disclosing or not disclosing, not necessarily suppressing your, you know, stress or you know, whatever else um, might be going on. Um, but, you know, showing up in an, in, in an authentic way humanizes the experiences that we're having. And so we don't necessarily have to be on all the time, uh, you know, a happy, perky, you know, everything is, um, you know, wonderful time because, you know, it's such an unrealistic expectation, um, and so I think letting people know, you know, not having the best day today, but here we are and we're going to make the most of it, you know, can be um, could be useful for for students, right, to show them this happens. <laughs> but that was interesting, Jacob, what you said that you know sometimes you've disclosed that and then maybe that it draws students' attention somewhere where then they ruminate on that instead of you know focusing on what you're talking about
1: yeah definitely and before we kind of like jump into like the teacher aspect and risk factors there's something i want to focus on was because ultimately and i am sure i can imagine this right like even though you focus on like teachers um social and emotional competencies right I would imagine like to get funding, funders are like, great, we like that you're focusing on teachers, but ultimately we believe this has downstream effects on children, right? And how is this impacting our children? How is this impacting students? So I was wondering, can you tell me more about like the specific outcomes that are impacted at the student level? I guess, is it like, is it just grades? Is it, I think you may be hinted at like social relationships, like- yeah, can you tell me first like the downstream effects of like if a teacher has very poor competencies or isn't doing well, how might that impact this kid?
0: Right, okay, so so there are several things, several directions we can go with that question. Um, the first one I want to clarify, you brought this up before, but we didn't end up addressing it. Like what do we mean when we talk about social and emotional competencies? I think that might be helpful um, to go over. So my understanding of social and emotional competencies is really grounded in the CASEL 5 model. CASEL is the Collaborative for Academic Social and Emotional Learning, so C-A-S-E-L, Castle, and they have a really great model of um, social and emotional learning that taps into, you know, what these things are. Too bad we're on podcast audio only or else I'd flash up the, um, the slide for you, but essentially they say that there are these core social Competencies like social awareness and uh, relationship skills, and then emotional competencies like self-awareness and self-management, the ability to you know, recognize and understand what's going on in your mind and body, and then the ability to regulate that in an appropriate way, given the context. And then the fifth uh, kind of core competency here is responsible decision-making. So the ability to make rational, logical decisions in socially and emotionally charged situations um, situations. And so those five make up the CASEL 5 competency, social-emotional competency model. And so uh, when I think about social and emotional learning for students, um, I think about developing those five, you know, core skill sets. And then we can also think about that model as applying to, you know, adults as well. So for teachers, those five, you know, competencies we can think about um, in that context as well. So emotion regulation, for example, um, as one of those core um, emotion skills. So so that's like, what is, what are these social and emotional competencies that that's what I'm thinking about when I'm talking about that construct. And then to your question, what are the effects of teacher social emotional competencies on student outcomes? because some stakeholders, some funders, might be interested in the student outcomes more than others. And so um, these are what we might think of as pretty distal effects. And so most proximally, um, the logic model that I think about, the kind of flow of influences are that teachers' social-emotional competencies are likely impact their own occupational health and well-being. So if they are well-regulated, they might be able to better manage the stress of being a teacher, for example. So occupational health and well-being is likely linked to their own occupation. Sorry, their social emotional competencies is likely linked to their occupational health and well-being. And then from there, if we're grounded in the Jennings and Greenberg model, their occupational health and well-being is likely related to their classroom level practices, like their teaching practices, their relationships with students their classroom management practices they choose to employ. And so that's a kind of classroom level outcome. And then we can think one step further, which is the student level outcome. So the individual student, what is the impact on on that that individual within the class? And so what I think is an exciting area here is that a lot of the research so far, so far has focused on these first couple of proximal um, effects. So the effects of teachers' um, social and emotional competencies on their own occupational health and well-being, maybe their teaching practices, but we don't really know a lot about the more distal outcomes on students. And so at this point, a lot of that is conceptual, but we have some preliminary evidence which shows that but there are some associations here. And so, one of the um, papers that I worked on in um, graduate school with um, my mentor, Rob Roser at Penn State, and um, Kim Schoenert reichl who's currently at the University of Illinois at Chicago, um, was trying to kind of get at some of these distal outcomes. And so, we ended up um, finding that teachers' emotion regulation skills were related to students' emotional distress in the classroom. So those who were using fewer or self-reporting fewer, you know, healthy emotion regulation skills uh, like cognitive reappraisal and using more unhealthy emotion regulation skills like expressive suppression had students who were more emotionally distressed. And so what was really cool about that study that I thought was um, really awesome is that we were pairing both teachers' self report with students self-report. And that can be a, a big challenge in this research because oftentimes we have a teacher self-reporting on what's going on with themselves, and then they're, they're also reporting on what they think is going on with the students. But what I really love is to be able to triangulate the data that we have. And so if we can connect, you know, the teacher's own self-report of their emotion regulation strategies with what's going on that students are reporting about themselves, or, you know, what we're observing from a third party is happening at the classroom level, you know, with interactions between teachers and students, I think that conclusions that we can draw are a lot more powerful. We're still trying to get at some of those things, but that's one example of some work that I've been trying to do here to explore the effects on, on students themselves.
2: Very cool. As a follow-up to that, I, now I'm curious. So the idea is that These competencies influence teachers' occupational health. I guess like I'm wondering, like, are there any known like risk factors for like maybe teachers like not having those particular like can you predict like what teachers might have like poor emotion regulation skills or like not meet all of those like social and emotional competencies and then have like poor occupational health? Um, and I guess like as a social psychologist, like um, I'm also curious, like, are there like specific sorts of like situational factors that maybe contribute to that?
0: Yes. So a lot of the research in this area has focused less on the uh, social emotional competency side and jumped straight to the occupational health and well-being side. So like trying to figure out who is at risk for stress or burnout or depression or anxiety. Um, and we definitely know that there are school contexts, which Are more high risk. So those who are under resourced, for example, we can think about those teachers are likely, you know, more stressed because they're trying to do their jobs right with, you know, limited resources. We can pull from the job demands resources model from, you know, for thinking about that type of um, of situation where the demands outweigh the resources that you have, and that could be both physical resources as well as emotional resources, capacity, we're, you know, trying to get at some of those things too. And so the kind of big, or I think you might be going with this, Cassie, is like, well, if we know who is at risk and who's not at risk, then can we intervene to support those teachers who are at risk? I think about this in terms of uh, our work with mindfulness-based interventions. And so we think about mindfulness as connecting to social-emotional competencies, as potential Essentially one of these core competencies that feeds into self-awareness and self-management, right? If you have more mindfulness skills, you're able to recognize and be aware of what's going on in your own body and mind. And then you're able to regulate that appropriately. You might also be more attentive to what's going on, appreciate little things that might be going on. That's another, another, you know, area. Anyway, so. We do know that individuals who are more mindful uh, self-report less stress. And so improving teachers' mindfulness skills is one way in which we think we might be able to press the lever and then have... Those teachers who develop those skills are likely going to experience better occupational health and well-being for some of those reasons. Um, And so that's where the kind of avenue in which a lot of my intervention work is drawn down here is if we can improve teachers' mindfulness skills, then can we improve these, you know, downstream consequences? And so um, I'm teaching this mindfulness course right now, and we're talking about kind of the commodification of mindfulness. Um And, you know, are we just using mindfulness in order to, you know, optimize productivity? If we can, you know, make individuals less stressed, but more focused, then do they, you know, devote more time to their work? Um, and so we're not Thinking about it necessarily in a an instrumental way in these interventions, but as a mechanism for wellness. Leave it at that.
2: <laughs> Thinking about these interventions, that was definitely like where my mind is going. Can you tell us like a, a little bit more about like these like specific interventions that like you are, are working with and like how maybe like information like on those interventions might be valuable for our listeners? recognizing that a lot of our audience um, is composed of like graduate students and and early career people um, in like academia. So like maybe people who are like pretty new to teaching. Mm
0: -hmm. So uh, you might be able to hear, we have a a parents night out going on um, here in city tonight. And so there's lots of of kid activity going on in the background Um, (laughs) anyway. So that's what's going on here in case you hear some background noise. Um, So my mindfulness work is primarily focused on the MBEB, Mindfulness-Based Emotional Balance Program. Um, This is work that uh, my graduate mentor, Rob Roser at Penn State, led a lot of, so definitely need to give credit where credit is due. Thank you, Rob. Um, And so he had several trials of the MBEB program. And so this is a a mindfulness-based program for in-service teachers, so teachers who are already teaching. So that would be, you know, if you're Um, listening here you're already in the classroom Um, that might be you it's a series of you know weekly sessions where teachers would come together they practice together debrief talk there's some didactic instruction and then there's some homework practices so uh, you know pretty manualized program there's actually a mindfulness-based emotional balance workbook if you're interested it's by Collins and Pons 2015 I don't get any royalties so I don't have it you know It's not for me, but if you're interested, feel free to check it out. And so they go through a variety of different mindfulness practices um, throughout this program. So one of those um, is a body scan. I actually have a copy of one here. If you want to do it together and show you a little bit about, you know, again, the experimental experiential learning, if um, you're interested in doing that together, we could do that.
1: I'm down with Cassie's.
0: Yeah, let's do it. Okay, great. So this is one of the activities that happens in the program. Um, So we'll start um, by allowing your body to find a comfortable position. You might choose to sit or stand. You can either, you can even lie down, whatever feels best for you right now. So wherever you are, let your posture be upright, but not necessarily uptight. And I invite you to close your eyes and place your attention on the sensations of your body. If you're with us here and you decide to keep your eyes open, just allow your gaze to lower and rest on the floor. And see if you can connect and sustain your attention to the full length of the in breath and then see if you can connect and sustain your attention to the full length of the out breath and as you continue to become more aware of your breath in and out, slowly bring your attention to your forehead.
3: Notice how it feels
0: behind your eyes, maybe at your temples, and let go of any tension that
3: you might be feeling in your face. Bring your awareness to your mouth. See if you can release any tension in your jaw. Are you holding any tension in your neck and throat? As you breathe in, bring awareness to these places. And as you breathe out, release that tension.
0: So in this body scan, we're going to begin to pour your attention and your awareness down throughout your body. So slowly begin to move your awareness across the top of your shoulders. As you breathe in, notice any sensation that you're carrying. And as you breathe out, release any tension you might be aware of. and let your awareness slowly move down from your shoulders to your biceps and elbows, down into your forearms and wrists and bring your awareness into your hands, feeling the sensation of all 10 fingers.
3: As you breathe in next
0: imagine sending this breath through the throat the lungs. Down through your arms, all the way
3: to your fingertips. And on the exhale release that breath and any tension that you've noticed.
0: If you begin to recognize that your mind is wandering or you've become lost in thoughts or plans or memories, just take a short pause and bring your attention back to the sensations of your breathing body. And as you continue to do this, see if you can also bring an attitude of kindness and friendliness towards yourself. If you find this challenging, you might offer yourself a simple phrase of may I be at ease. Let's bring that attention back to the center of your body and feel the sensation of the breath at your belly. and Allow your belly to soften as you feel the rise and fall of your breath. Allow your awareness to drop into the body by connecting with the experience of gravity. Extend your awareness across the top of your thighs, into your knees, down the front of your legs. Feeling the shin bone in the front, the muscles of your calves in the back. And as you breathe in next, just notice the sensation of just being.
3: As you breathe out, release any tension that you've noticed in your legs.
0: Finally, as you breathe in, bring your breath and your awareness all the way down from your nose down to the down to the ground to your feet where they're resting on the floor. To the left foot, the heel, the arch. Your toes. To the right foot, the heel, the arch and the toes. And as you breathe out, release any tension you're holding. So in this final step, we're gonna open our awareness to the global sensation of the body. So bring your awareness to the top of your head, from the top of your head, all the way down to the bottom of your toes and feel the gentle rhythm of the breath as it moves through the body. And as we come to the end of this practice, I invite you to take a full deep breath, taking in all of the energy you're feeling right now. And
3: exhale.
0: And whenever you're ready, you can
2: open your eyes and join us back here. This is the most relaxed I've ever felt in a podcast interview.
1: (laughs) I need to start my classes with these types of exercises. I know I I was
2: (laughs) I had that thought too like about halfway through I was like I feel like there are days when I need to do this with my students.
1: (laughs) And this was a formal like a body scan type of and switch right, which is
2: yes. So this is a
0: version of a body scan. It's not the exact one that is used in the MBEB program. Um, this one was pulled from online. I did my own, you know, additions to it. The general premise of a body scan is that you know you work from one side of your body or direction of your body all the way down to the other and noticing any sensations, tensions, releasing them as you go. So it sounds like you both. Thought that was kind of relaxing. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah.
1: Hopefully anyone who was listening also gets to go through it themselves and just be like, Witcha.
2: Yeah. I think that is like a very interactive component of this episode. So yeah, definitely like if you were listening, hopefully you didn't uh, fast forward through that, like go back and actually do it.
0: <laughs> so so the question for both the the listener and for listeners and for you guys is, you know, what was the impact? know you said it was relaxing what was the impact for you your you know emotional social physical potential outcomes and might that when we think about for teachers might those types of practices impact how they're approaching the class or how they're interacting with students
1: definitely i could see on the social like it was kind of like a mental reset needed, right? So it's like, I'm not necessarily, and I'm sure you all know some of my background news, which i will probably share on the podcast in some sort of different episode when things are finalized, but like there's a lot of energy and there's just a lot of, not necessarily stress, but like tension. And so kind of having that reset, getting grounded again and being like, you know, to me, I can definitely see the helping of like right before I give a lecture, right before like a class is about to come in, of kind of like getting me in the zone, quote unquote, and kind of getting me back on track or like, yeah, I don't know how to say, but like grounding myself back into like, oh, I got this.
2: I think for me, like provided like an opportunity to become, I guess, more aware of tension I might have. I'm one of those people constantly like clenching my jaw all of the time. Like I hold tension in that way. And then like, I won't even realize like, why is like my jaw hurting? And then I'm like, oh, well, I guess maybe I'm a little stressed and I've been like clenching my jaw this whole time. Uh, So definitely like that, that part of the exercise, it was like, release your jaw. And I was like, oh yep, I need to do that. It's probably something I should check in with myself about more frequently. Well, you're not alone in the (laughs) jaw tension.
0: That's pretty common. Um, (laughs) My dentist even told me that in graduate school that he. He sees a lot of grad students coming in for you know jaw related issues so it's a common it's a common thing
1: I'm yeah. <laughs> um, just like learning about this like oh uh, no my attention's always at the neck for some reason mm-hmm. it's just a constant cracking um plus I also like the aspect of just I think you said like being kind to yourself or treating yourself with kindness I think especially if you're in like the professor you're just like in the academic realm we're always kind of like Go, 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 go. Next project, next project, next project. And I feel like a lot of people do with like imposter syndrome or I'm not good enough or, you know, I could always be doing more. So mm-hmm. I do like the aspects of, because I've done a couple of like these examples with you, your lab, your undergrads as well. And I feel like a core thing that we merge is like just treat yourself with kindness, right? Like approach things with just like that generosity of giving grace to yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's pretty impactful as well.
0: Yeah, there's a whole attitudinal component of mindfulness. It's the, to quote the you know, Kabat-Zinn definition, it's the open awareness of what's going on in the present moment, but it's also with the attitude of non-judgment and acceptance. So those are, those are quite key.
1: I'm kind of interested. So kind of with my background, looking in the open science movement, I know mindfulness comes up a lot. Um, in the research domain, it's kind of like a more popular topic as of late. And I feel like there are like dozens, dozens upon dozens of like operationalizations of like a mindfulness intervention. Some are like five minute apps, some are like three month long workshops. How do you, I guess, sort through that, right? So it's like, it seems like not like not all mindfulness research. I feel like there are arguments, at least to my knowledge of like, what are we tapping into really? Or like some people are more tapping into it, others or maybe missing the mark, or maybe like a two minute exercise in a lab is not really getting someone to a mindfulness mindset, but like it's teaching them habits. Or
2: mm-hmm. I was just
1: wondering for people who are interested in mindfulness, like, do you have any advice for like how to navigate that literature? Or like, are there things that are more trustworthy or less trustworthy to you? Mm -hmm. Um, as you like try to incorporate that and like you keep up to date on the field?
0: Yeah. How do you, how do you enter the mindfulness space and how do you make sense of what's out there? As a researcher, my advice would be to go where the data says. And so, you know, there's lots of, you know, programs you could probably download an app, you know, right now off the bat, but we don't know if it has any evidence behind it. You know, does it, um, improve mindfulness skills is, you know, the first question, right? If it's a mindfulness app, it, that's probably the first target um, you know, in the, in that logic model. And then does it have any, you know, subsequent, um, effects, And so I think it can be really difficult when there's been this, you know, popularization of mindfulness to know, you know, what's solid empirically grounded evidence-based advice and what's just something that, you know, somebody came up with (laughs) and now they're saying, here's my, you know, mindfulness program. Um, And so my advice would be, you know, look to Google Scholar, you know, put in the name of the program. Does it come up? Is there any evidence behind it? So we know, especially for teachers, the MBEB program, um, mindfulness-based emotional balance program, and um, the CARE program, cultivating emotional resilience in education or in educators care by um, Tish Jennings at UVA. Um, has some solid empirical evidence. Um, Both of those have been solid empirical evidence behind them. But those are slightly less accessible to, you know, the general, you know, lay audience, somebody who might be listening because those are package programs. You know, you have to go to a training, um, you know, so they're a little bit more challenging if you're just like, oh, I kind of want to try this thing. (laughs) Let's see how it works. And so if you are listening um, right now and you're interested in just kind of like poking around with some mindfulness practices that do have an empirical evidence base, I would say take a look at the Healthy Minds program, and it is an app. It's freely available on the app store. Um, It was developed by some um, interdisciplinary group um, out of the um, University of Um, Wisconsin-Madison, their center up there, and there has been some research on it. Um, And particularly um, with teachers and, you know, with the general population has shown to have some positive effects on um, teachers' uh, levels of distress. Um, And so that would be one that I would say if you're interested in, you know, just kind of starting to to look at what's out there, that's a a good one to take a look at. So it's free on the App Store and, you know, it's grounded in their own model of well-being all based in uh, mindfulness and meditation practices. Um, There's lots of options, you know, you can choose what practice to do or not. And what's really fun about that one is that they have both uh, mindfulness practices, as well as these short lessons. So just a couple of minutes giving you some of the research or evidence behind what they're talking about next or what you're going to be doing next. And so it's a nice kind of balance of the practice as well as the knowledge. So uh, we use this one in my class this past semester and, you know, continue to talk about it. So that might be one that you might be interested
1: in. Do you have other pieces of advice for someone who like might not have access to those specialty training programs? I know you mentioned the app, but like someone who's like, there's a teacher, there's a college teacher, or just teacher in general. And they're like, I want to improve my social and emotional competencies, right? And you can be like, well, there's this website for that. Um, or they might be saying like, I want to engage in mindfulness practices. Are there tips, tricks, or pitfalls? Like, do you have like general advice for teachers who are listening for early career researchers who are like okay you sold me
0: mm-hmm.
1: what what can you share with me like what can i be doing now so
0: there are uh three um, kind of go to mindfulness practices um, that um, you might want to think about having in in your toolbox if if you're you know on the mindfulness train now. And so um, one of them is the body scan. So you know we practice that together. Um, you know relatively simple premise, and that can be done um, you know in a break between classes, or if you're just sitting here at your desk in between meetings, um, you know you have the kind of flow of how to do that. And so that's a, that's a good one to kind of have in your back pocket. Um, The other one is just a simple breath practice. So taking three deep breaths, you know, noticing the inhale, noticing the exhale. I paused because I saw Jacob inhaling as I said that. (laughs) Um, And so those, um, taking those three deep breaths, you know, can set the, you know, pause button or reset button as, you know, you're, you have a stack day of, you know, 10 meetings and here you are, you know, transitioning from one to the other. Um, So taking a pause for those breaths. So the body scan, the three deep breaths, and then the third one is intention setting, intention with an I. And this is kind of identifying an approach or a way of being, for example, that you might want to have for yourself for the day. Um, So this is, you know, a little bit more um, complex, but, you know, this might, an example of this might be, I want to be um, present, or I want to be Open, or I want to be insert your you know adjective. Is it an adjective? <laughs> uh, what was tenth grade English um, here? You know, how do you want to move through the world today? And so. That can help, um, especially like at the at the beginning of the day, if you're driving into work, taking the bus, walking to school, wherever, however, you know, you get to wherever you're going to be doing a lot of your, uh, wherever you're going to be being for a lot of the day, um, that can help to kind of set the tone for the rest of the day. So then if you're in, you know, in the middle of meeting number six out of 10, you know, you might want to come back to that attention. Here I am present in my meeting with Jacob today. Those are, you know, three go-to practices that that can be really helpful. The body scan, the breath practice, and intention setting. Um, So if you want to Google intention setting, there are lots of other, you know, words you might come up with.
2: Well, thank you so much, Summer. Um, You said, like, in your description of your teaching philosophy that you really cared about experiential learning and that you like to know, give your students something concrete that they can leave your classes with. And I feel like you accomplished both of those things in this uh, podcast episode. Um, But as like a a concluding thing, we always like to give our guests like an opportunity to give any kind of plug or like shout out for like maybe a a project that you are working on or is like soon to be published or like maybe a social media page or a lab page or or something like that where, you know, it's something you're, you're excited about and would like to share. Share with our listeners
0: Sure, yeah thank you um, well um, as a relatively new faculty member here I'm definitely excited to um, you know start to and continue to work with students um, on these types of themes and so if anyone's listening here and interested in um, you know working together on on one of these topics I'd be happy to chat more um, I am on Twitter summer braun. I think underscore PhD, um, happy to, you know, connect on Twitter or shoot me an email, at UA.edu. And um, our uh, lab name is the Witty lab, W-I-T-Y, Wellbeing Interventions for Teachers and Youth. W I T Y, witty lab, <laughs> um, which Jacob is a member of, um, and so we're also on Twitter. Um, I think as just witty underscore lab. So if you're interested in keeping up to date with what um, we are doing in the lab and what's um, you know coming out, definitely invite you to follow us on there. Um, we're trying to make it known what we're what we're up to. Um, so I'd be happy to connect on any of those platforms um, if anyone's interested. Awesome. Thank you so much. Great, thank awesome. you
1: very much. Yeah, thank you, because in case anyone is listening, this is being done on a Friday night. Summer's being very generous <laughs> with her time with us. Um, so for anyone who's listening, thank you for making it. Hopefully, you found those three concrete steps of advice useful, that the activity was fun. And also, contact Summer if you're interested in collabing. She's actually a very great person. So shout out to the Witty Lab. Um, <laughs> Other than that, uh, I'm going to wrap up our podcast episode. I hope you all have a great rest of your evening, and I hope the listeners have a great rest of their day whenever they listen to this.
2: Bye, everyone. Bye.
1: Hello, hello again. We just want to thank you one more time for listening to two random weirdos. If you want to listen to us ramble some more, we'll be posting episodes hopefully bi-weekly on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Fingers crossed.
2: If you want to get in touch with us, we can be found on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at corruptyouthpod. Or feel free to email us at corruptingtheyouthpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and helping us spread the corruption. Bye. Bye.